Thanks, Abby, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm glad that you can join us as we continue this series in Ezekiel. And in particular this morning, our theme is about uh, living in exile. And so you may or may not think that that applies to you this morning, but once we begin, I think and hope that you will see how it applies to all of us. So please join me, we'll pray, and then we'll look at the scriptures together. Father, thank you that we can gather within the walls, listening for your voice, allowing your Holy Spirit to teach us. My prayer, Father, is that in this moment in history that your Holy Spirit would move in our community in a mighty way and in all the churches in Seattle we pray for, Father, in order that we might shine as light in the way that you intend, Father. Forgive us for misrepresenting your heart in any way. Uh, Help us each to take steps today individually and collectively toward uh, being people of hope in our world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, in fact, it's my life verse, actually, is in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses uh, 23 and 24, which kind of begins this way, don't let the righteous man, uh, uh, excuse me, don't let the wise man boast of his wisdom, don't let the strong man boast of his strength, don't let the rich man boast of his riches, but if anyone would boast, let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me, right? And I've quoted that verse hundreds of times in different settings as a speaker and in pastoral conversations. And I've said, knowing God, it's all about knowing God. And it's true. The scripture says that's the one thing you can boast about. But yesterday I was at a memorial service and these verses were read. And since I wasn't the guy speaking, I was listening. I came under a profound sense of conviction as I listened to it being read, because this is how it actually reads. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices loving kindness and justice and righteousness throughout the whole earth, for in these I delight. And the reason I came under conviction is because uh, our calling isn't to just understand and know God, but to really know the character of God, that our God is loving, and just throughout the whole earth. That's significant. And it it means that it's important for all of us to understand what it means to present Christ with clarity as a God of love. And to be honest, often in this moment in history, the presenting image of Christianity to those driving by right now is not that God exercises loving kindness toward all people. Not that God is just, not that God is interested in, in uh, uh, righteousness and caring for widows and orphans and immigrants. Instead, uh, often though we have outward forms that we worship, we gather in settings like this, we either come across as mean-spirited and proud or we are mean-spirited and proud. We use language like our God, as if we have God and other people don't, as if it's the God of us these people who gather, and the people on the outside, it's not, it's not their God. So there's a high and a low. There's an in and an out. There's a right and a wrong that becomes adversarial. And that's actually parallel to what was happening uh, with the nation of Israel when then Israel was swept away, conquered by the Babylonians, and a large group of people taken into exile. So they're now living in Babylon. And so God is waking Israel up to the difficult times in which they find themselves so that in this heightened sense of awareness now as living as exiles, um, like a minority culture in a majority population, living as exiles, they might ask the question and really hear from God, God, what, what do you have for us? 
What does it mean to live in exile? And let me tell you that living in exile is a very, very important principle and question for us to ask, how can we live faithfully in exile? Because here's the reality, we're in exile. Like we, God's people, are a minority in a majority culture. Now, you can argue about that, you can like it or not like it, it doesn't really matter. The reality is we are people in exile, and increasingly so. And the reason I say increasingly so is because we, the church, and I'm talking about the, 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 the organized institution of Christianity in America, we, the church, are seeing a rapid, dramatic flight away from institutional faith uh, on the part of particularly people under 35 years old. And I'm just going to read a quote from an article that I was just reading last night. Today we're seeing a growing impatience with the institutional church's accommodation toward and lust for temporal power. Younger generations, no longer willing to give the church the benefit of the doubt, are driving a max exodus out of the church, which they see primarily as a source of pain and abuse in the world, not a source of good. But for those who have not given up on the church as a vessel of God's grace, the demand for a new reformation is at hand. We have to wake up and learn what does it mean to be the people of God in this moment. One theologian from California says this, we're losing an entire generation, they're just gone. It's one of the worst things that's happened in the church in 500 years. And then uh, continuing this article, the children of boomers see the church today as complicit in and co-opted by the ways of the world. People have little interest in perpetuating churches which produce loyal foot soldiers for consumerism and nationalism when they know instinctively we're called to march with a different drum. Boom. Significant. Exile. So what does it mean to live in exile? If exile is like this minority culture for us collectively, or if exile is uh, for us individually a dissonance between where I am and where I want to be, how, how do I live well in exile? And, and so if that's the question, Ezekiel in chapter 18 articulates three practices that will equip us to live well in exile. The first practice is this. We need to embrace reality. We need to get over our excuse-making about being in exile. The second is we need to learn how to practice repentance. Uh, and the third is uh, we need to experience righteousness. So embrace reality, experience repentance, and then experience righteousness. We're going to look at those three things together, beginning with this significant word uh, that Ezekiel offers to people in exile. First, embrace reality. Now, when, we're, when you're the minority and you go, man, what's happening to our culture? Everything's bad around here. Why is it this way? It's easy to get angry. And we may be feeling like we're suffering as a result of being in minority, or we may be suffering for any number of reasons, all of us in the room, at a personal level. There's two excuses that Ezekiel kind of deconstructs here in chapter 18. And until I, get, until I sweep away my excuses, I'll be play, playing a victim card in exile rather than becoming part of the solution, right? So what are the excuses? Well, here's the first excuse that Ezekiel addresses. He addresses what I call the family of origin excuse. In other words, why, why am I living uh, the way I am? Why am I making the choices I'm making? Why am I complicit with consumerism? Why do I have my own personal addictions? Why am I so mad at the world, mad at the Democrats, mad at the Republicans? Why am I so mad? Well, uh, often we appeal to, uh, have you ever heard somebody say, that's just the way I am? Well, what we're really saying when we say that is... Uh, Look, there are forces outside of me that have shaped me to be this. And that's what I call the family of origin excuse. And Israel stuck there in verse 2. 
Because Ezekiel says to Israel, hey, why are you repeating this proverb? And here's the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, um, why are we suffering if it's our parents who blew it? And on the surface, <clears throat> people are co- actually complaining here about the way that God has set things up. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, this is what God says. I, the Lord, am a jealous God, and I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. And all of us in the room know that there's some truth in this, right? If, if you grew up in an abusive home, you're more likely to become abusive. You grew up in an alcoholic home, you're more likely to become alcoholic. Drinking begets drinking. Greed begets greed. Prejudice begets prejudice. And as a result, people end up, all of us do this, we replicate the dysfunctions of our parents and we end up paying a price for it. And this happens. Have you heard of B.F. Skinner, the psychologist? Skinner goes, hey, you don't write on the journal that is your life. Uh, The world writes on you. In other words, uh, like you're determined by cultural forces that are bigger than you. You're shaped by your experiences. And here's God's response in Ezekiel chapter 18, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 9, get over it. That's my paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. In other words, that's what he's saying. Listen, you're not suffering for the sins of your parents. You're suffering. That's all that matters. You're suffering. You don't have to deal with why. Here's the reality. You're suffering, and God is not saying by that anything that's contradictory to what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Here's why. God does say in Deuteronomy 5, family systems lend themselves to inherited dysfunction. Absolutely true. But God is also saying throughout the Bible, God is saying this, it doesn't have to be that way. The good news of the gospel is you can break the patterns. So in uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, we read about a horrible king in Israel. His name was Ammon. And so he involved the nation in idol worship and uh, child sacrifice as they were offering their children as burnt offerings on an altar to this god Molech. And uh, there's oppression, and there's greed, and there's like usury interest rates going on, and immigrants aren't being cared for, and widows aren't being cared for. So it's unjust, it's corrupt, it's abusive, it's vile. Uh, and Ammon's the king, and then he dies, and his son, eight years old, Josiah, becomes a king. And if it's true that we always replicate the sins of our parents, then Josiah's going to lead Israel down a terrible path. But instead, Josiah becomes one of the best kings in all of Israel. And he's like, he's eight years old. So he's in like KSA. He's doing kid stuff, right? And, and then at the age of 16, so he's in the youth group now, but he's king. At the age of 16, he says, hey, the temple's a mess. We've got to clean it up. Some guys go into the temple. They find in the temple the book of the law, the first five books of the Bible. Nobody's been reading it for generations. And so they bring this book to the king, to Josiah. He says, hey, let's read this. As they begin to read together, Josiah and a couple of people in his office, so to speak, it says, Josiah rips his clothes, repents, calls a national period of fasting where he reads the law, and, and then Josiah says this, we will recover, boom. And they clean up the idols, and they reinstitute the Sabbath, and they reinstitute the Passover, and they reinstitute the Feast of Booths, and they, and they reinstitute justice and caring for the widows and orphans. It's called revival. And it happened when the son of the worst king ever turned to God. So don't tell me that you are always the product of your environment because it's just not true. You're here now, 
no matter what your family story is, and there is always a next step that you can take toward wholeness. Always. You don't have to play the victim card. That's just a lie. So that's kind of where we start here. Boris Cornfield was this doctor who was arrested uh, for making disparaging comments in the Soviet Union against the Communist Party, Jewish. Ultimately, he died in the Gulag, but before he died, uh, he led Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, to Christ, this famous author, and, and uh, before that, he himself, Cornfield, was converted to Christianity by a guy, uh, a patient of his, as he was the, kind of the prison doctor, a patient of his who gave him like a little scrap of the New Testament, and he read it, and he became a Christian. And then, and then uh, once he became a Christian, he stopped signing these documents that said, I as a doctor, I'm telling you, this guy is just sick. He wasn't mistreated by uh, the guards because the guards were beating guys and they'd come in and he'd sign these things. And now he's a Christian. He said, no more, I'm not gonna sign these anymore. Well, that, in saying that, he signed his death warrant basically because as soon as he falls asleep, he knows somebody's gonna come in and beat him to death. So they'll find a doctor who will sign this stuff. So now he's staying awake for days on end and that's when he shares his newfound faith with Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And this is what he says to Solzhenitsyn the night before he died. He said, listen, uh, until I came to Christ, I lived this life of profound bitterness. I hated my accusers. I hated communism. I hated those who wronged me. I hated the guards. But now I'm free in prison, freer than I ever was outside because I'm free, I'm free from hatred. And here's why I'm free from hatred. Because when I go over my own life with a fine-tooth comb, I see my failures, my greed, my lust. I'm as guilty as anyone. So when I'm feeling stuck, I need to ask the question, look, not uh, who do I blame for this? When I'm feeling stuck, here's the question I must always ask. What is God telling me to do in this situation? What's my response to be? And if I ask that question, there's always a step toward wholeness, always, regardless of my family background. Super liberating. Victor Frankl uh, wrote about this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, lived this in Auschwitz. A Viennese psychotherapist who was Jewish, he ended up in Auschwitz and uh, spent his time in Auschwitz actually counseling people in the midst of their despair. And he, he said the same thing to every prisoner. He said, look, however you got here, you're here now, and the one thing that no prison, no, no concentration camp, no guard, no Reich, no political party can ever take from you, the one thing no one can ever take from you, your freedom to responsibly act in this moment. What is God asking of you? you listen, you are responsible, do you see? Responsible. You don't have to play the victim card. So I have to get over this excuse, the first excuse, hey, I am the way I am because of what people did to me, whether it's my family or my boss or my neighbor, whatever. You're here, you can respond. That's the first thing. It's pretty liberating, actually. And here's the second excuse addressed in Ezekiel, and particularly Jeremiah addresses this and others as well, uh, for Israel, God speaking to Israel. Don't say you're special. The I'm special excuse, right? And this shows up in lots of places, but in Ezekiel 16, remember last week, the metaphor was God speaking to Israel, hey, you were a baby 
squirming in your blood, dying in a field. I, I saved you. I brought you into my home. I bathed you. I fed you. You grew up. You became beautiful. I gave you the best clothes, the best jewelry. Remember uh, Genesis chapter 12, God's word to Abraham. I will bless you and bless you and bless you and bless you. You'll be a light shed on all the nations. You will be a people of blessing because I'm going to bless you. So you're immensely blessed. And then what happened to Israel is having been immensely blessed, over time you kind of get a little complacent in your immense blessing. And then, you know, idol worship sneaks in and arrogance sleeps, uh, sneaks in and, and a sense of entitlement sneaks in where we're like this. You know what? We're, the, we're, just, we're just here and we're, no, we're not going to suffer. We're fine. Um... Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He's, he's writing to Corinth. Now, I don't know what you know about the city of Corinth, but I'll just tell you a little bit right now. Corinth, highly educated, wealthy, a port city, so pluralistic, politically liberal. Does that sound like anyone you know? <laughs> so that's Corinth. And like the, the wealth... And the education breeds a sense of entitlement. So when Paul had a hard word to say, the Corinthians were like this, we don't have to listen to Paul. I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of educated, like he's an outsider. We don't have to listen to him. So here's what Paul says to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, in the common English version. This is what he says. Hey, Corinthians, what's so special about you? What do you have that you were not given? And if it was given to you, why do you brag about it? That applies to all of us in the room. Most of us in the room are recipients of incredible privilege compared to the rest of the world. I went on a website this week called globalrichlist.com where you can type in your salary and it'll tell you where, how, where you fit on the planet. Like, where, like how wealthy are you compared to other people? So I picked a random number, because I don't want to share my salary with you. I, I picked a random number, 45K. I thought, that's a pretty low salary. Some of you make more, some of you make less, 45K. Listen, if you make $45,000, you're in the top half percent globally. Do you realize that? Well, here we are, some of us in the room, trashing the 1%. If you make $45,000, you're the top half of 1% globally. Compare that to Ghana. To, to make $45,000 in Ghana, you'd have to work 281 years. And I know that you can kind of take these statistics and deconstruct them and talk about how, how hard it is to live here. I totally get that. But here's the thing. This is the point. You, you and I, we were born into clean water, born into an educational system, born into access to high-paying jobs. That doesn't mean we don't work hard. You may work really hard. But this is what it means. Your hard work yields exponentially more blessing than most places in the world because of where you were born. And hello, you didn't choose where you were born. That was a gift given to you through no choice of, of your own, through no hard work of your own. Others work just as hard or harder than you do and suffer more, enjoy less, and die young. In addition, for many of us, we have not only this national heritage, but we have a family heritage, overwhelmingly positive. For me, adopted into a family that gave me faith and security and values that have served me well, I didn't earn any of that. 
So enough with the boasting already, enough with the entitlement mentality, enough with looking down on those who are suffering, enough with looking down on addicts and street people and homeless people and people who are in the midst of immense suffering and saying, if only you worked harder, if only you made better choices, stop it. We don't know why people are where they're at, but our job is to represent the heart of God. And remember Jeremiah 9, I'm the Lord, loving kindness, that's what I give. I just pour it out. To everyone, regardless. So the real, hear me, the real point of being blessed is always so that you might be a greater blessing. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. To whom much is given, much is required. That's the way it works. And so if God is pouring into you blessing and blessing and blessing, it's so that, John chapter 7, you might be a river of living water. So that, so that the blessings of God's pure, clear water are, are pouring into you, but they're pouring into you not so that you can build a dam and just enjoy the blessings. They're pouring into you so they might pour out of you. And, and, and so that's why all of us in the room are called always to have these kind of glasses on looking around, how can I bless? How can I serve? How can I give? And if you're asking, I'm glad you asked, Kids Summer Adventure needs you to volunteer, Right? It's coming up in just a couple of weeks here. It's coming up really, really soon. And kids will be here, 210 kids. And you can serve. Serving is blessing. Don't build a dam around the blessings God has given you. Because the real point of being blessed is you might end up being then a blessing. So God is saying here, hey, let's, let's sweep these excuses aside, Right? Uh, victim mentality, yeah, you know, if it wasn't for the Democrats, if it wasn't for the Republicans, if it wasn't for Trump, if it wasn't for the evangelicals, if it wasn't for my instructor, if it wasn't for my abusive father, I get it, I understand it, I understand the anger, I understand the pain, I, I, I see it. But here's the point, sweep it away because there's always a step toward wholeness for you, always. So we've got to get away, we've got to get away from the, uh, uh, the victim mentality, and we've got to get away from the entitlement mentality. Yeah, I'm here because I work so hard, and so, you know, I'm just going to build a wall around my stuff and save it. No. So God is trying to expose in us idols so we can deal with them. And if God exposes idols, then what needs to happen is the second prize, we need to embrace repentance. I'm going to read out of Luke uh, chapter 3 because John the Baptist is this, offers this beautiful picture of, of uh, repentance, right? So Luke chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist is out in the Jordan River and he's baptizing people, right? And apparently... Uh, He's effective as a communicator and popular because it says, therefore, crowds were coming out to be baptized by him. Crowds, not three, crowds. Now, I'd be thrilled if crowds were coming here to be baptized. I'd be, I'd be thrilled. And we'd move the drums and we'd fill the thing and I'd be like this, Duncan Dunn, Duncan Dunn, Duncan Dunn, right? <laughs> Love, love crowds. Well, but John, listen, here's what John the Baptist says. So crowds are coming to be baptized. This is what he said. You brood of vipers. Who preaches that way? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You, you think baptism does something? Listen, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say, we have Abraham as our father. 
That's the entitlement mentality, right? So, so don't fall prey to the entitlement mentality. We have Abraham as our father. Don't ever think that by vicarious association with Bethany Community Church, that constitutes faith. Or by vicarious association with the larger institution of Christianity, that constitutes faith. Or, or just having a Bible constitutes faith. Or a bumper sticker. Or a t-shirt. Or because you listen to Hillsong. Who cares? Listen, faith is only made visible through your works that come about as a result of, here's the word, repentance. And, and so until there's repentance... There's no visible evidence of faith. That's just the way it works. So John the Baptist was like this. Hey, don't just think that getting dunked changes you in any way. Getting dunked is this outward sign of an inward transformation. And John the Baptist is basically saying, you got to deal with the, tr the transformation before you do the dunking, basically. So in Ezekiel, then... The, uh, this, this repentance thing is we're kind of given a, like a twofold uh, manner regarding repentance. Because if you ask, well, what is repentance? Repentance is literally is a turning around. So I, I'm, I'm drawing and feeding on certain idols and behaviors. And repentance just means this. Turn and now feed on what God has for you. I was getting my meaning here. Now turn and get my meaning here. That's that's repentance. So in this case, um, in Ezekiel 18, turn from pagan shrines, seducing your neighbor's wife, bullying the weak, stealing, piling up bad debts, admiring idols, committing outrageous obscenities, exploiting the poor. Turn from those things. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting. Uh, turn from pagan shrines. What are pagan shrines? I don't know. Let me check Facebook to find out. Oh, yeah. 171 likes because my wife owns a chainsaw. Wow. <laughs> I'm special. That's a pagan shrine. Do you understand? Like my identity is this socially curated Instagram persona. Turn away from that. Like, look, your identity isn't your marathoning. Your identity isn't your skiing. Your identity isn't your running. Your identity isn't your car. Your identity isn't your likes. Your identity isn't how many friends you have. Your identity, if you're a Christ follower, your identity is this. I am what? Complete in Christ. That means I need Christ plus nothing for meaning. And God goes to great lengths to show us over and over again where there's an idol. And we got to turn away from the idol. This week I had a kind of unfortunate experience where some stuff was stolen from me. Lost an iPad lost a computer, uh, lost a journal. And, you know, I, you kind of take it with a grain of salt. Oh, yeah, replace the iPad, replace the computer. Journal can start again. But I lost my wool hat. And I'm going to tell you, this is terrible. I'm confessing to you. I, I lost, the, oh, whatever, this, this. Then I go, my hat, my hat was in there? This is what I said. Damn it! I was so mad. Take my computer. Take my iPad. Take my sound system. Take my sweater. Don't touch my hat. 
And it created me this kind of introspective moment, like, why the heavy response on the hat? Like, what's up with that? <laughs> and I realized this hat represents a, quite a bit to me, this little wool hat. First of all, this hat's been all over the world with me, so I love it for that reason. But second, this hat is my way of saying to you, when I wear this hat, my way of saying to you, I'm not downtown material. I'm mountain material. I'm not, you know, Nordstrom material. I'm REI material. I'm not, you know, consumer stuff. I'm goodwill stuff. That's who I am, you know. And I realize this image is an idol. Does that make sense to you? And I gotta, I gotta deal with it. So listen, when God exposed an idol, what do we have to do? We turn away. Turn away from pagan shrines. Turn away from seduction which some of us are guilty of on the internet. Turn away from alcohol, which some of us are guilty of. Turn away from theft, which some of us are guilty of. Turn away from piling up bad debts. Turn, it, turn away from idols. And then turn away from committing outrageous obscenities. And if you wonder what an outrageous obscenity is, here's the deal. If you need to ask if your activity is an outrageous obscenity, then it is an outrageous obscenity. You just know that. So last week, we kind of named our stuff, anxiety, fear of commitment, materialism, individualism. We came, we tore these things off, our own sexual ethic, whatever these things are, and I've been reading them all week, and it's powerful, but this week, it's important, repentance is not just turning from, it's turning toward. Does this make sense? I have to turn toward something. So what he says here in chapter 18, verses 5 through 8, stated positively is this, once you've, turned, once you've swept the house clean... Turn toward generosity, fidelity in relationships, honesty in speech, advocacy for the voiceless, hospitality. What does that look like? John the Baptist says it this way. If you have two hats, give one away. I don't have two. I have ten. Nine now, but I have hats. <laughs> if, you have if you have two sweaters, give one away. Listen, don't... Don't build a dam and pile up blessings. Live generously. So repentance begins with setting stuff aside, but it can never stop there because there's, two gi there's a gigantic problem. I, if, I, if all I do is clean the house and I take all the bad furniture out and I don't move the good furniture in, it's not a nice place. It's a vacuum. For a house to be hospitable, I have to fill it with the right things. And often Christianity is only known as uh, the religion of no, don't smoke, don't commit adultery, don't drink, don't do porn, don't, do, don't be greedy, don't miss church, don't lie, don't eat too much, don't enjoy sex too much. Stop! Like I get it, you got to clean the house, but you move the old stuff out to what end? So that you can move stuff in. And what are you moving in? Justice, mercy, hospitality, joy, peace, wisdom, strength, healing, forgiveness, Loving your enemies, move in. <laughs> That's repentance. I can't really repent unless I turn away from and turn toward. Unless I sweep it clean and move in. And we're at risk right now in American culture of, of be, like being this community characterized as only those interested in sweeping the house clean and not moving in. By common uh, conversation, 
with people under 35 is this. I'm rethinking my relationship with God and the church because to be honest, what I'm seeing in the church is not attractive and I don't want to be associated with it. That's why it's not enough to turn away from idols, but to turn toward. And when I turn toward, what happens? I experience righteousness. That's the final thing. Righteousness defined right living. Right living. This is the fruit of repentance. In other words, righteousness is not being here. Righteousness is not having the Jesus t-shirt. Righteousness is not listening to KCMS. Righteousness is not reading the, the, the Bible. Like the fruit of righteousness is what we're actually doing. Climbing gear doesn't make me a climber. A guitar doesn't make me a musician. Great skis don't turn me into Lindsey Vaughn. <laughs> the only way to be a Christ follower is to fill the house that is my soul with justice and mercy and hospitality and service and generosity. And it's our collective failure to live differently that's at the forefront of the reality that people under 35 are leaving the church in droves, not because they have no interest in Jesus, but because they have no interest in religious rituals that don't call us to transformation. What they see and hear is anger and culture wars and fear and tribalism and judgmentalism. Mark Laberton, the president of Fuller, says it this way, and I quote, the church is, one of the, is, is in one of the deepest moments of crisis, not because of some election result, not because of what's been exposed to be the poverty of the American church. What, what we see here is a poverty that has come about because the American church has failed in its capacity to see and love and serve and engage in ways that are life-giving. And that vocation, seeing and loving and serving in ways that are life-giving, that vocation is the vocation that must be recovered and made real. So if you find yourself in exile, and by the way, you are, recognize that it's not our calling to fight to regain social and cultural prominence via anger, via politics. It's our calling to turn toward loving our neighbor, turn toward caring for the least of these, turn toward generosity, turn toward hospitality. How? Whatever's in front of you, that's how. David Brooks in his uh, new book entitled The Second Mountain talks about a couple in uh, Washington, D.C. Their son had a friend who was from a lower-income family, was hungry. He brought him home for dinner one night. That friend, the next Thursday night, brought another friend. Those two friends brought three more friends. And now, David Brooks says, you go to this house on any given Thursday night, and there's 25 to 30 high school kids sitting around the table. Cell phones are banned. Third of the way through the meal, a question is asked, what's a highlight of your week? What's something uh, none of us know about you? And they just go around the circle. You know what? I don't know the faith of those two people, but I'm telling you, that's what it means to be the presence of Jesus in this world. Open your home, share a meal. Do what's right in front of you. And what's right in front of you is KSA serving, so that's an opportunity. You can do that this week. I'm not kidding. I mean, 210 kids that you can love. That's great. My wife and I have always sought to just say, God, whoever you bring in our door, we want to treat that person as Christ and love that person. That's, a, that's the way we've lived our lives. 
a gal came to us when we ran our ministry up in the North Cascades. Um, and we opened our home to her and discovered, she lived with us for six weeks, discovered uh, on about the second night that uh, she was dealing with uh, demon possession, that she'd grown up with a satanic church. It was taxing to be the Prince of Christ for her. But also incredibly life-giving, why? Because we're in the stream of God's activity, do you see? Pouring out, we're gonna continue to receive. Pouring out, we'll continue to receive. We'll be rivers of living water. That's what people driving by desperately need, is to taste that water that is hospitality and justice and loving kindness and mercy and hope. May we be that people, amen? Father, meet us now as we come to your table. Our desire, Father, is not to be just another voice in, in the culture wars. Our desire isn't to raise our fist. Our desire is to open our hand. May we encounter you now at your table as you speak to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If the servers would come, I'll remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink all of it. We gather here this morning to be people of hope in the world. And the only way that we can be people of hope is to turn away from those things that have enchanted us, that are idols, and turn toward Christ. This is our moment to turn toward Christ and ask Christ to show us next steps to be people of hope. So, the servers will come. If you would, take the bread individually. Save the cup. We'll receive it together at the end, signifying our unity in Christ. Let's worship together.